Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Barnaby Wiener. He is a portfolio manager at MFS. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the role of central banks in fostering irrational exuberance in the equity market and the challenge of truly investing for the long term where management and asset owners are often too focused on benchmarks and quarterly performance. We cover how to be defensive in a market that's dominated by passive investments and growth at any cost. We explore how sustainability and stewardship is not really different from the historical teachings of fundamental analysis and good capital management. Finally, we we conclude the conversation by discussing the misalignment of management incentives that have been exacerbated by central banks. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So I think where the place to start this conversation today is the backdrop that we've created in markets, which is the the increasing uh, influence of central banks in supporting markets and the potential risk that comes alongside that, which is the fragility that comes where markets always expect more and more stimulus, more and more liquidity to keep them alive. How do you think about that backdrop when you start to build a portfolio? Well, I'd agree with you that that is, um, you know, in some ways, this of the overarching has been the overarching driver of markets for for many years. Certainly, the last ten years, possibly even longer than that. I guess my perspective um, has always been, um, to some extent, to ignore it. And in, in many respects, I mean, clearly that's been the wrong wrong uh, perspective over in in recent history. But I guess, you know, I think it's important to emphasise, you know. Our approach is very much um, about taking a longer-term view and um, and and trying to ignore the noise. I mean, I think one of the sort of the, the characteristics of markets today and and life generally is we're sort of overwhelmed by sound bites and information and and sort of what's happening today, tomorrow, over the next week or so, and it becomes harder and harder just to take a long-term view. And in the long run, I don't think central bank policy really has a profound influence on the value of businesses it doesn't um it doesn't determine long-run economic growth and you know it doesn't determine which companies are successful so if you're building a portfolio for the long term um i think really you just have to focus on 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 that looking for good companies that you think um you know have truly enduring economic characteristics and that are, are you know at a valued um at a reasonable level, and if you can't find those, or you can't find them in sufficient quantity, then you have to sort of think about um, you know, having a pretty defensive macro positioning um, in terms of, in our case, holding cash and, and using other tools to protect the portfolio, um, in the hope that one day you'll get an opportunity to, to um, exploit uh, exploit bargains and, and and buy those good companies um, at a at a decent valuation. Um, so the short answer to your question is, frankly, I'm inclined to ignore it because I don't think in the long run um, it it has a it will it will be the ultimate driver of of corporate value. Well, there's plenty of research, obviously, to substantiate your points there. I guess the challenge then for you as a portfolio manager is how to 
operate in an environment where many of the investors and the institutional investors are constantly trying to benchmark themselves against an index or their peers and so forth. And so how do you actually keep a long-term objective you know, front of mind and at the same time explain to investors that you need to be long-term to ensure that you actually get the outcomes that you that you want and you need, you need for your members? Well, I guess that, you know, the first thing is to be really clear with your investors what it is you're trying to do and be really and explicit about that. And so, you know, in the case of the, the strategy that, that I'm involved in managing, you know, we are pretty explicit that it's a it's a long only sort of equity oriented strategy, but that our goal is to deliver absolute returns. It's not to, you know, to be the benchmark year to year um, and also articulate our sort of our broader concerns about, um, you know, excessive about that sort of irrational exuberance that you referred to at the beginning. Um, and I think if you can get, you know, if it, it, to some extent in the investing world, we're all intermediaries and, and that creates a lot of agency risk. And, and the only way of, um, of surmounting that is by having a very sort of clear and open and trusting relationship with uh, with your clients and i guess you know thus far touchwood we've been reasonably fortunate in that regard and that i think clients have, have have understood what it is um we're trying to do um but you know everyone has to buy into this that that, that, that investing is a um a long-term game that typically you know if you think about the time horizon of the end investor whether it's a um you know a a, a pension fund um a holder or a, a um, private individual or, or, a, you know, or a endowment or a foundation. I mean, typically these are individuals and organizations whose time frame should be measured in decades. Um, so in, in that sense, it's illogical to be worrying about investment returns um, quarter to quarter or even year to year. Really, the, you know, people should be thinking about you know, where, where are we going on a 10 to 20 year time frame. And, and that's difficult, but I think that's the, you know, the only way you can invest long-term is if you have clients who are thinking long-term. So how do you then think about the portfolio? You've obviously got you know, a, a blank slate in terms of how you choose your companies and, and the types of businesses. Do you then think about what, you know, what makes up a mixture of core value type companies for today with some, maybe some long shot style businesses as well that are more longer term growth or, or how, you know, how do you think about how to actually capture what's performing well today versus what may perform well in the next 10, 15 years? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say about portfolio construction is I, th I think you have to be, um, you have to be willing to cast the, the benchmark to one side and just say, you know, what the benchmark looks like is of no real interest um, to, to me in constructing a portfolio. And the fact that the benchmark may consider may make may um, include you know, a large number of banks or energy companies or, or whatever um, doesn't mean that I need to own those companies in my portfolio. In fact, the less my portfolio looks like the benchmark, the better, <laughs> um, because as an active manager, that's what I should be doing is 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 um, building a portfolio of companies that actually want to own rather than just companies that happen to be well represented in the benchmark. So, so that's the, 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 the first uh, important part of it. And then I think in terms of what kind of companies we, we, we want to own, and it, it ultimately comes down to 
um, companies that can deliver our investment objectives, in other words, deliver um, a decent return over a, a long period of time. So I think the, you know, the first question we always ask ourselves is, is this company going to be around in 10 or 20 years time? And when I say, is it going to be around, is it going to be around and still profitable and, and, and not impaired in, in some shape or form? And frankly, that excludes quite a lot of the market because, I mean, you look around at a number of industries um, and, 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 and conclude, I have no idea whether, you know, this, this, this whole industry or certainly the, you know, which com this company is going to be uh, still prospering um, in, uh, you know, in 10, 20 years time. Um, and so it's about, to, to me, it's about focusing on durability first and foremost. Um, it's more about durability than growth. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, of course, one would love to own a company that can grow its revenues 20% a year indefinitely. But actually, in, in reality, that's, that's very difficult um, uh, because aside from the valuation conundrum, because, of course, typically growth companies trade at, at much higher multiples, um, but even if you put that to one side, actually high growth it, you know, is very difficult to sustain and it creates all sorts of risks. So, for example, you know, try, you know managing a, a business that's growing at 20% a year presents huge challenges in terms of you know, continually rebuilding up the organization, um, hiring more salespeople, hiring more uh, engineers, um, creating the right infrastructure to cope with a much larger volume of activity without upsetting the culture um, or, or, or you know, uh, undermining the sort of entrepreneurial spirit that got you there in the first place, without attracting more competition, without attracting more scrutiny from the regulator. So there are all these dynamics that make growth incredibly hard to sustain. Um, and actually, there's been a lot of research done of this that that basically shows how hard it is to sustain um, high levels of growth over an extended period of time. So as I say, for me, it's it's more about finding durable businesses where you can be very confident um, that they'll still be around and that the downside is limited. Um, hopefully they grow maybe a little bit ahead of GDP, but I mean, the first, you know, most important part of all is is that they're, they're durable. The ironic piece to the type of a, in um, the type of market environment we have today is that we have a whole stream of growth companies in quotations that are effectively zombies and not actually making money. They're they're growing revenue. They're leading the stock. You know, the leading the stock market in terms of market capitalization. They're having a large impact on returns, and so people come to expect that this is what you should be investing in, given the size of the businesses, um, and. It becomes now obviously an issue that it sucks people in that they need to look towards these companies um, that are hitting revenue targets and growth numbers, but as you say, they're not having the underlying fundamentals of cash flow to actually drive them as long-term sustainable businesses. It's a really challenged environment, I guess, for investors where they feel that they want to invest in these businesses because they have the idea and mentality that these companies are the future and growth, but come back to value which you've discussed they don't have the value that lines up with the growth that that's there um you know how do you then have that conversation around the types of businesses that you want to own you know with investors again i think you just have to be really disciplined and be willing to to look different i mean you know i think in some respects 
investing is all about being willing to look an idiot and do and be doing something that no one else is doing and be wrong you know you may be wrong for a long t- a long time before you're right um but ultimately um you know if you if you can't resist the 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 urge to own those big names that are you know significant constituents in any ETF and you know held in most portfolios um then you know it's going to be a struggle to to create a, a portfolio that looks different that's and that's active i mean the point is you don't need to buy um apple and microsoft and, and not necessarily that they they're zombie companies those two, but you know the big amazon or in in, in a in an active because they they're sitting in every passive you know portfolio so you're not really um um doing anything that that, that distinctive um but you know it's it's not just um the sort of the mega ca- companies i mean it's, it's really it's a challenge across the board in that you know there are many good uh solid durable businesses um that do generate decent cash flows decent returns but are now valued at you know such extreme levels that really um the odds are uh, to some extent stacked against you um investing them and, and i think that you know that creates a, a big challenge uh, for investors because you know, it's a bit similar to what's happened in in the fixed income market you know we have when you have um you know interest rates pretty bond yields pretty well across the whole curve you know at close to zero <laughs> um in some countries you know you've had at various points you know 30 year bonds yielding nothing um then every it forces bond investors to take more and more risk and you have you know credits that are frankly junk uh, um that, you know certainly close to junk you know yielding almost offering no return so you know it's a uh, return free risk um and i think to some extent the same is is happening in in the equity markets it's it's um you know the the equivalent of the of the bond proxy in the, in the equity market is now trading at such high valuations offering such a low return that it then forces people to to um you know into sort of taking more risk so it creates a very fragile situation so the you know the margin of safety ultimately in these types of businesses is is become almost nil um and so you've got nothing there and the expectations of continual growth are so high that any misstep that these businesses have there's quite a re-rating that that comes next absolutely i think your the point about margin of safety is 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 so important and and you know there are two ways you can have a margin of safety one is from valuation and the other is from from fundamental support and and the problem now is that any most pretty well every half decent company offers no margin of safety when it comes to valuation so then you'll sort of you're you're digging around in the um frankly digging digging around in the rubble of the rest of the market looking for companies that may actually be not so bad as 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 they appear and you know there there will always you know there there will always be opportunities there because you know markets always misprice at individual security level but in general it's it's a it's an attritional activity that because you know a lot of most cheap companies are cheap for a reason i wonder how do you think about the amount of money that's been pouring into passive has that potentially reduced the inefficiencies in the market or or has made the market how do you think about that's impact in terms of efficiency and the opportunity to find you know mispriced securities 
It's an interesting question, and I don't really know the answer because you would think eventually that if enough money flows into passives, that will create fantastic opportunities for active managers. Um, I'm not sure it has yet. I mean, arguably, it certainly has pushed up. I'm sure it's been a factor in in driving markets higher and particularly driving certain parts of the market higher. Um, but, but interestingly, I don't yet see um, real evidence that it's thrown up easy um, valuation opportunities um, in other parts of the market. And, and you know, it's saying that it, the growth in um, or you know, the performance of some of those mega cap stocks may in part be explained by the strength of passive flows. But, it, you know, it, it, you can rationalize it in other ways, too. You could say, well, look, um, you know, what, what Amazon has d done in, well, first, obviously, in, in e-commerce, but also in, in cloud, what Microsoft has done in terms of growing its cloud activity and, and you know, its core, core business franchise, what, what, where Alphabet is in terms of its dominance of um, online advertising, et cetera. You know, these, are, these companies are at the epicenter of a, of a change in um, the whole dynamics of our economy. And, it, it, you know, you can justify their performance. I'm not saying I think that they're necessarily, um, in all cases, good investments here. Um, and you know, there's, there's plenty of reasons why on a longer term view, I think one could be concerned, but you can certainly explain it that way. So I don't know. I mean, it's the, eventually I agree with you. Eventually, if there's enough money in passive, um, then, you know, that will for out opportunities. I, I'm not sure that it is uh, it has done so yet. I'm curious to get your thoughts around um, the moves to shift away from shareholder primacy as the model. And how does that play into your thinking um, you know, as predominantly a long only equity holder? I think it's a really positive move, um, and um, and I think also, you know, going back to the active versus passive distinction, I think ultimately um, it is it is why you you know passive ownership of of equities can never be a a, a long term solution, you know, because ultimately um, to, a, a healthy system will involve not just um, people actively picking which securities they own, but also actively engaging with the companies that they own, which I think is a really important part of you know, capitalism working properly. Um, but you know, to, in terms of this, you know, the, the the shareholder versus stakeholder primacy debate. I mean, this isn't new. You know, the the the, the the purpose of companies, you know, what 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 a, what a company exists for, has been, you know, debated, um, you know, and discussed for decades, if not longer. And I think there has always been this sort of natural tension between um, the different stakeholders of a company. Obviously, if you're, um, you know, if you're an owner of a business, ultimately you you care about the value of the business and 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 the um, the income you can generate from the business. If you're an employee of the business, you know you want to, you care about your income from the business, and you know the 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 the, um, 
the environment that you work in. If you're a supplier to the business, you have a different interest. If you're the community in which you know the business operates, you have a so every stakeholder has their own perspective. Um, but a good company, a durable you know, company, needs to manage be itself in the interests of all stakeholders. Because if it doesn't, you can't do without one of those stakeholders. You know, if you've got no customers, ultimately you've got no business. If you can't persuade anyone to come and work for you, you've got no business. If you, you know, if you squeeze your suppliers to death, you've got no business. And in any of those, and, and if you alienate the communities you operate in, you've got no business. And ultimately, if you alienate the regulator, which is, you know, essentially regulators and governments are just, you know, the voice of that, you know, they are to some extent the elected representatives of the communities um, in which companies operate. And if they say, we don't like the way you're, you know, you're behaving, um, you got, you know, that's ultimately going to jeopardize the future of the business. So, you know, as a shareholder, as a long-term shareholder, you, you, you're insane not to be worrying about the other stakeholders, regardless of your politics or ideals. It's in your interests as a long-term shareholder that the company is is operating the right way. And I think that, you know, what what's happened in in the last 30 or 40 years is really as a sort of as a reaction to the um, I guess a, a, a reaction to the sort of ascendancy of left-wing politics in the 70s, um, both globally and you know, at the time we were still worried that the Soviet Union was going to, you know, march across the the German plains and and take over um, the world, but also within you know many countries you had um, very strong unions, very strong sort of left wing politics in the ascendancy, high inflation, and it was you know not a happy period. And so you had the sort of Thatcher Reagan revolution on the back of the Chicago School of Economists all saying you know, markets, markets, markets. Milton Friedman saying the social responsibility of business is to increase its profit, etc. And that sort of unleashed this whole sort of wave of deregulation and shareholder value and all that stuff. And it just went way too far. And people have you know, started to realize that. Um, and obviously, you know, the, I think the, the additional f um, aspect of you know, some pretty existential threats to society um, in the shape of climate change, obviously, but also I think sort of you know, rising concerns about growing inequality, etc. It's just sort of turned the, you know, the pendulum is now clearly swinging back in the other direction. But I think it should be seen as as part of a, a you know, a very long term um, sort of a, a long term, te you know, um, relationship between um, different stakeholders in, in society, rather than just some new, um, new fad that's yeah. just, you know, crept out. Can, can I put it to you that, you know, this stakeholder model is really what most of us were taught at university in terms of fundamental analysis as we looked at a company and we looked at the suppliers, the customers, there was the Porter's Five Forces. You know, how does it differ from really what, what was done maybe 30 years ago? I agree. I mean, it, it, I mean, I think it's really just going back to the basics of what a, a good company is. And, and I'd say it goes back to great examples in the 19th century. Um, in and I'm being a bit uh, UK centric here. I'm sure it's not just in the UK, but there were these Quaker-run companies like um, Cadbury's and Roundtree's um, that you know were extraordinary 
visionary in in many respects in that they you know this is during the time of the victorian era where you had sort of workhouses and you know terrible social inequality and um and no safety net and yet these companies you know were managed very much with a view to um you know the 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 the, the social responsibility that the companies had to their employees and their communities i mean they built the first um that they built housing for their employees they built schools they built libraries they provided health health care um they 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 built the you know they started the first ever pension you know there was sort of you know real visionaries and they were these this is wasn't driven by regulation or legislation it was driven by co- company management that had a very clear purpose and a very clear ethos and was determined to do things the right way so i agree with you it, this goes back centuries not decades and it's just um it's just the basics of running a, a, a good long-term business. And I think that's the key. It's the, it's the long-term, you know, as long, as soon as your focus drifts inwards to the sort of, you know, the next three to five years, then you, you're, you're bound to look for shortcuts and, 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 and forget about, so trying to create that, that balance and, and harmony. Um, and then, you know, that's a slippery slope. I'm curious because recently you were appointed as the head of sustainability and stewardship. You know, how, how has that changed your thinking, right? And that, that sort of feels like you're just giving more credence to your title, you know, and so what changes as you think about yourself as a portfolio manager to now being in charge of sustainability and stewardship alongside your portfolio? Well, I mean, the um, it, 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 it hasn't changed my thinking. I think that my, um, my taking on this role reflects the thinking I already had, if that makes sense. In other words, um, I think I've I've always felt pretty strongly that um, that companies should operate in a certain way. That that you know that ultimately a good company, in terms of a, a company that creates value for its broader stakeholders, is ultimately going to be a good company for its shareholders. So that that hasn't really changed. I think that. What probably has changed in the last five years is I've become more preoccupied with some of the um, some of the deficiencies in our system, where, for example, you know, we the investment community um, you know, putting too much pressure on companies to deliver uh, financial results, uh, often um, at the the at the expense of other stakeholders, but also at the expense of our own long-term uh, security. I mean, they give you a classic example of this, you know, and, and, you know, we talked about central bank policy at the beginning. I mean, you know, one of the impacts of um, monetary policy has been to make the cost of money almost zero. And that's encouraged companies to take a lot of, take on a lot of debt and often use it to buy back shares. I mean, the whole notion of, of putting debt on your balance sheet to buy back equity to me is just utterly nonsensical and if you were a family business you know thinking you know that where you're you're trying to build a a durable company for the next generation it would never cross your mind to do anything like that um but yet you know public companies do it the whole time and invest and investment um professional investors are guilty of of encouraging it in fact they you know ultimately I, the blame lies fairly and squarely with the investment industry, not with the, the public corporation, um, or, or rather not with the management. Um, so I think that, you know, that 
that has changed in 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 you know in, in terms of the intensity with which I feel in some ways our industry is is being heading or heading in the wrong direction so I guess that in that motivated me to want to get more involved in playing a part and helping to to rebalance but ultimately it's it you know my core views about what how companies should operate and how companies should be managed uh haven't really changed at all and so my views about what sort of companies i want to own haven't changed at all is there a problem with agency in the types of people that are running these businesses if we went back 30 40 years a lot of the people that were ceos of the companies that we saw were the owners the founders of of the business at the time now we're we're filled with management consultant style CEOs that run businesses optimized to the nth degree, which which will potentially buy back shares because it makes sense to them and their incentives line up with that. You know, is that part of the problem that we haven't got the right incentives for the types of managers that are leading these businesses today? I think it's, uh, at, you hit the nail on the head, it's a huge problem. Um, and so the question is, how do we, how do we, Eliminate or how do we sort of mitigate that agency risk? And um, yeah, part of it definitely does count, come down to incentives. Um, so if you look, I mean, I'll give you an example. Japan is a is a country that um, is generally pilloried by the global investment industry um, for the quality of its corporate governance. And there's some with some justification. I think you know, I'm not saying Japan is Japanese companies are perfect. They tend to Japanese company boards tend to be founder dominated and tend to be um, they don't score highly on diversity on the whole. Um, but the, you know there is something one thing about Japanese companies which I think is hugely admirable and and should be um, you know should be replicated globally, which is that you know management are not um, juiced up to the eyeballs with stock you know stock you know, incentives and and the the their primary incentive is actually a, a sort of cultural one which is you know as a, as a as a japanese company manager your primary goal is to make sure you have a a, a a robust business to hand over to your successor not going bust is the sort of primary goal of most japanese companies now you you can compare it to to the us which is at the other extreme you have these some sometimes just frankly obscene incentive packages which are offered to managers which um, give them the opportunity to become not millionaires but in some cases billionaires over a period of a few years if they can um, achieve a certain outcome in terms of profitability and, and, and the share price so it, it, it creates huge adverse incentives now how, how do you correct for that I mean obviously you, 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 you could say well look let's get rid of all this stock comp um, or let's do it a different way. Let's say, um, you know, we, we, we bring on this manager and we say, okay, we're going to give you this much equity in the business, but you have to match what we give you by putting in, you know, your own personal money. So you've got real skin in the game. It's not just a, a free option. Um, and you've got to keep it locked up for the next 20 years because the decisions you make for this company should be impacting its future in 20 years time, not in three years time. Now, the trouble is, you, you could try putting that incentive in place, but if that same potential CEO has got three other companies all saying, well, look, here, what we're going to offer you is this, <laughs> which will get you, probably make you very rich in, in three or five years time. It's just very difficult. So, I, you know, I, I've, I've struggled with this because I know the system has to change, um, but 
it's hard and we have these conversations with companies at Paramount. It's it's quite hard for a company to deviate um too far from market practice and not um you know yeah you know and not suffer it. There are some that do. I mean there are some great examples. I'll give you one just quickly as a, a Canadian company called Constellation Software. Fantastic uh uh company in terms of the corporate governance and and um and culture and you know it's operating in the technology industry which is probably the the worst um culprit when it comes to egregious uh, uh stock-based comp constellation software has never issued a share to its management managers instead every every senior and not just the executive managers but the top two two three hundred has to put um 75 percent of their cash bonus back into company stock um, and keep it for up to five years um, with vesting periods over five years so really, they're forced to have true skin in, in, in the game. And then it works there. They've got a very strong culture. I'd love to see that implemented more broadly, um, but it's a challenge. But there needs to be a lot of pressure. We've seen a huge amount of pressure on diversity and, and you know green-related initiatives and so forth. There's enough money in the asset owner community and the asset management community to push back. Um, and I, I sort of wonder why. You know, Is it just convenient to look the other way and allow for these very large option packages to be paid out because the stock and performance has been doing well. So it doesn't really matter. And like you say, there are a number of examples of, of CEOs walking away with billions um, in, in executive compensation, which in, in my my own opinion, doesn't seem to line up with the ESG uh, you know, qualifications and metrics that they seem to profess, you know, on a day-to-day level. I'm, I'm not sure how that lines up. So, you know, is the problem almost a failure of, of capitalism almost in, in trying to align the right incentives. So how, how do you think about, you know, where did it go wrong? Um, it definitely is. A, the, the, I think you're right. It, you know, it, there, there's a failure. Um, I think that the, there are so, you know, failure of capitalism is, a, it, it is quite a loaded term and I, and I, I don't want to use it just because, Ultimately, to me, capitalism is the only work, working workable model, but it needs it, it needs to be refined dramatically. So there's definitely there's you know there's there's um, there's, there's there are many aspects of it that 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 need amending. And 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 one you which you point to there is um, really goes back to the point about active ownership and invest in, in the investment community taking responsibility as owners of companies to play their part. Because I think that um, you're, and it's not just when it comes to executive comp. It, it's across the board, by and large, with, with you know the the investment industry has been incredibly passive, regardless whether it's active or passive in the traditional sense. It's been passive in terms of its um, its relationship with with company managers. It's been far too cosy. Um, you know, there's a there's a sort of um, it, you know, we, we all prefer a, a sort of easy, cozy relationship than a confrontational relationship. And, and you know, to some extent, um, you know, it, it, investment firms, you know, feel the need to cultivate good relationships with company managers because they want access. They want to be able to discuss the um, how the business is going because that's sort of, you know, helpful in terms of forming their views. So there's a, there's a concern about, you know, alienating company management. But ultimately, the, the, we as an industry have a responsibility. And so you're absolutely right. We need to be more um, disciplined when it comes to, um, you know, both obviously ultimately how we vote, 
But before that, actually how we engage with companies on these topics, engaging with the board and and, and having these com sometimes awkward conversations about, you know, what the company is doing in, you know, in this 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 way or that. So absolutely, it's true for executive comp and it's true for many other aspects of the way where the company's run. I'll bring the conversation back to where we started, which was around the central bank and central bank policy. How much has the central bank, you know, in lowering interest rates and providing a lot of liquidity to the markets actually helped to sustain a lot of these potential problems that we've, that we've seen with, um, you know, inflated share prices, the misalignment of incentives and so forth? You know, is that part of the problem? Yeah, I think it's a huge part of the problem. I mean, I think in some someone somewhere, point in the future we'll write a, the history book about this and you know that will be the sort of the central question which is um in this sort of age of supposedly unfettered capitalism we actually had the opposite we had you know we had um highly um a highly regulated model of capitalism only the regulation was working in the wrong direction because in a sense that's what the central bank policy is a form of regulation it's 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 a it's a you know it's a central authority coming in and regulating the temperature of, of the market. An unregulated market would I mean think what an unregulated market would have done in two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine. Um, and I'm not saying that would have, would have been a good thing. I mean we you know in some ways we 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 know that but you know Bernanke was a student of the of the thirties and he, he'd seen what, you know, he, so he had, was all too familiar with what happened um, when you have a, a, a market, a, a bubble burst and no sort of intervention, you know, you have a depression and that's what happened in the 1930s. So his whole mantra was must avoid a depression. So we have to shovel liquidity in until we stifle the problem. But it was, it was, you know, somehow central bankers got addicted to their own medicine. Um, and it's just to me, incredible really that you know we've we've got to the point we're in where every time there is just a, a whisper of 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 agitation in the markets you know policymakers are in there like a flash you know shoveling um money in and, and the you know their job is not to prop up the stock market um and you know propping up the stock market has has helped people who work in the stock market. It's helped people who are wealthy enough to have significant exposure to the stock market. Um, but it hasn't helped um, the you know, broader economy or, or, or society as a whole. So it's it's a say it'll be one of those things that people write about in decades to come. How on earth you know this came about in a in a democratic era where you know, everyone had a had a voice. All right. I think that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Barnaby. My pleasure, Alex. Nice chatting. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.